Hi, welcome to the Sacred You podcast. I'm Rachel Goodwin and I'm a channel and healer who loves to teach and empower others. I offer a look at spirituality in fresh and new ways and you can see more of my work at my website at rachelgoodwin.dk and the classes and sessions that I do. So I have the incredible honour to interview Maria Kvilhaug. Maria is the author of The Seed of Yggdrasil, The Maiden with the Mead and The Blade Honer series, as well as other books, articles and lecture videos on Lady of the Labyrinth YouTube channel and her Facebook page. Most of Maria's work stem from her academic background in the historical, cultural, linguistic and religious aspects of pre-Christian Scandinavia. Norwegian born and bred, she writes most of her stuff in English in order to best reach an international audience. And in order to earn more from her work so that she can finish her book projects and make more videos and audio recordings of her books, she opened a Patreon account on the Winter Solstice 2020. And I love Maria's work. I've been a big fan Um since 2015 and she's really unique I think um, in the work that she produces she has a a fresh eye and a deep understanding um, due to her academic background and her spiritual insight into things and um, I enjoyed this interview so much I hope you do as well lots of blessings everybody Ahu heia valea nahoi e kahaliko puakukui kuhia ho kanaia akapuhu kumoni nei pihikui kahima nahoi ikahapili. Hello everyone, we've got another episode of Sacred You for you and today I'm interviewing Maria Kvilhaug. How did I do, Maria? Does that sound all right? It sounded all right, yes. It's okay, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you because I'm a really big fan of your work and have been for a few years now since I moved since I moved to Denmark. Oh, you live in Denmark then? I do. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not far. I, yeah. I moved here in um 2014 because I married a, a Danish guy oh and um, I met him in Findhorn in Scotland a spiritual community and um, yeah and then when I when I came here I didn't know that much about Scandinavian 
mythology, spirituality. And I couldn't really find any good books, you know, that weren't sort of just sort of more academic, historical type stuff. And I, I wasn't really interested in the... I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, but sort of the standard Viking stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, I you know, that. more of a sort of a female, divine feminine type person. So um, I, I asked, there's a lot of spring, I live in, um, we live in Roskilde, in Shelland. Oh, Roskilde, oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's there. a lot, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of springs here. It's beautiful, all the, all the, all the yeah. springs energy everywhere. And, um, you know that the Roskilde comes uh, from Ros, the, 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 the spring, the water spring of Ros. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah that's right. And um, oh, my husband is just coming in. What are you doing, honey? Yeah, I... Oh, he's got his computer. Uh, mine is also wandering <laughs> behind him. They, they just, they can't, they're just <laughs> coming in and creeping in and wandering about. <laughs> <laughs> he never does that he's he's quite he's quite well trained now but never mind obviously. <laughs> a bit like the cats coming in aren't they yeah yeah I can relate I can relate <laughs> men cats <laughs> yeah oh what was I saying oh yeah so I made a page I made a page for like these springs like because I came here and I was like wow these springs are amazing and there was nobody around them and I'm going, oh, the energies, it's fantastic. So I made a Facebook page, like the Sacred Springs of Roskilde. And, oh. you know, and then Danish people started seeing them. And somebody wrote to me on there. And, and, and so we went and had coffee together. And I said, oh, I can't find, I can't find any books about, yeah. you know, Scandinavian spirituality. And she said, you need to read Maria Kvilhaug, The Seeds of Brazil. Oh, <laughs> and so I did so that was what that's seven years ago now yeah. that, that, oh. I did that and it's just oh I mean I still don't know if I've read the whole thing from cover to cover because I pick it up and I read sections of it you know yeah. I've never I've never sat and like read it in like systematic order I haven't either <laughs> 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 it's not that kind of book really it's uh yeah it's, it's not it's not it doesn't read like a novel really. no how, how long did it take you to write that oh um I could say years actually um yeah. I st- oh I think I started writing um a manuscript that would become uh this work later on um back in 2006 2007 um yeah. and then I kept working on it I had so many hundreds of pages basically that I kept reviewing and rewriting and uh, eventually I uh, I tried to I, I just started this YouTube channel it was uh, actually my my husband who um well he uh, inspired me he told me that I should make some videos about all the things I knew so I tried and I got so much response that uh, I kept doing it for a couple of years I think I began back in 2009 doing this and making these videos based on all the things I had been writing 
mm-hmm. and uh, I kept going, making videos about this for several years until until I had worked enough to make uh, this book, which was finished in 2012, actually. So yeah, yeah from 2006 to 2012, I worked on this this book. So and it's, yeah, it went into it's, 700 pages. Yeah, I was going to say, so it's, yeah. it's pretty... <laughs> It's pretty yeah. racy, isn't it? It's like, yes, yes. It's not, it's not one to pack in your hand luggage. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not that kind of book. <laughs> it's demanding, actually. Yeah. But I, 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 when I, when I, when I got the book and I, I just read sort of the first. I think it's you know it's still in the Roman numerals um, pages, so it's just just sort of the notes at the beginning. That bit where it says important Norse terms and sacred professions. When yeah. I read that list there, I just honestly I can't tell you how life changing that was for me. Just to just to read that list because I could feel the energy in it of it was another way of being, you know. Because yeah. this isn't fiction. This is you know a society that existed. Yeah. And it's still, you can still feel, well, I, you know, I can like in Denmark, like where I live. I mean, it's supposed to be Christian here because, yeah. you know, we have the Donkirka and it's the seat of Christianity in, in Denmark. But then all around here, there's Grauhoi everywhere and there's Yerushua. And, and it's just, you know, in, in the museum in Roskilde, they've dug up the bones of, um, a, you know, a Norse witch basically yeah. she was buried it's everywhere it's in the landscape and it's in the culture and and yeah and when I when I read this list of you know um say there is magic and sorcery and witchcraft divination oracle shamanism save Kona scowled it just <sighs> I found myself in it somehow and it was really strange because I'd never been interested in like I said, kind of the Viking stuff, you know, where everyone's running around killing each other with swords and calling on Odin mm. and, you know, being very sort of um, masculine with it all. Yeah. You know? I get the problem. I, I I had this attitude for a while too when I was younger. Um, well, I, I was also very into women's history and the history of goddesses and witches and priestesses. Uh, uh, and I I had grown up with Norse myths uh, and the Norse stories, um, um, but I hadn't really... I also had this impression that it was a lot more um, masculine than it is. It was actually much more balanced, I, I discovered later. Uh, there was a great deal of balance between the genders in in both mythology and literature than I had expected when I uh, sat down with it so yeah yeah I was actually quite amazed when I sat down to I had studied the poetic edda before uh, in school and I heard about it I grew up hearing about it Uh, it was a part of the culture I grew up in 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 many ways Um, an historical part, but uh, it was there. But uh, I didn't really discover the Edda poems until I was about 21 years old. Uh, and then I had been 
really studying other sorts of mythology, um, every like, and also history, archaeology and history. I was very much into Maria Gimbutas. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, and um, I had actually, I think I had a spiritual experience um, back then. I am, um, you know, the 20s, you're searching and I, I had a lot of dreams. I dreamt a lot and I was very curious about uh, what these dreams might mean. And uh, I went into a bookstore. I was in England, actually, not, not in Norway. I had moved to England to study art and uh, walked into a uh, bookstore. And there I saw this poetic Edda um, in English. Uh, by it was a translation by Caroline Larrington. And I was actually like, wow, they have this in English? I didn't know. I didn't know that it could even... I thought this was like exclusively Scandinavian, that nobody knew about it other places. I, I didn't realize it, it. It actually was so interesting to many English speakers, uh, so much so that I even had translations of the poet together. And well, this was just because I didn't know uh, that this interest was there out in, outside of Norway or Sweden or Denmark. So, uh, well, I saw it and... For some reason, I didn't buy it at the moment <laughs> because I had one that I, I remember that I had one at home. Uh, I had several books at home. I had sagas and uh, the the prose Edda and the poetic Edda in Norwegian at home. Um, well, in my parents' bookstores, uh, not, not the bookstore, but the what do you call it? Bookshelves. Bookshelves, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in my parents' bookshelves. So uh, I didn't buy it because I thought, ah, oh, well, I can read it when I when I go back home. Uh, I, I went back to where I was staying, and I had these very powerful dreams. Uh, so, actually, I had a dream about going into the underworld, uh, and I uh, came into a very large under. A subterranean cavern with a river uh, going through it and there was a boat there so I entered the boat and uh, someone was in front of me and was rowing the boat down the river and when she turned her head it was a woman her head was her face was that of a of a skull of a mare like the like the Celtic one you know the Welsh uh, Yule or mare thing <laughs> Yeah, and she turned around, uh, and uh, I uh, remember she. I just saw her face, and then she uh, rolled me down the river inside this cave, and uh, I saw lots of ruins on, uh, like ruins of towns and villages that I was going to, and I was wondering what was there. And then I, uh, I don't remember more of that dream, but I remember feeling very strong. I had this image in the back of my mind um, all the morning. I had this image of the norns uh, pulling threads. And uh, I even remembered something I had uh, promised sort of when I was nine years old, uh, when my dad was talking to me about Norse mythology and, I, and about the Norse gods. And I asked him, uh, where, where are these gods now? And he said that he thought that maybe they didn't exist anymore because he thought that gods exist when people believe in them. So I felt really sorry for them. 
and I prom- I shouted out to them in the mountains. Uh, we were in the on a mountain cottage holiday, and I shouted out that I would remember them, <laughs> and I would make sure that they were not forget- forgotten, so that they didn't have to die. And <laughs> that was a child's promise. But I remember that, and uh, I was twenty one, so uh, much time had passed. But eventually, I. Um, the very next day, as soon as I could, I went back to the bookstore and I bought uh, this book and I started reading it, the, trans- uh, the translated version. And uh, the more I read it, the more surprised I was about the depth of meaning in the po- poems. And uh, the more aware I became that a lot of the meanings probably couldn't be um, understood by reading a translation alone. Uh, because a translation, especially a translation of an old language, and uh, it, Old Norse is very similar to modern Icelandic and uh, the language they also speak in the Faroe Islands. But um, but it's not the same. It was it was it had it was it was spoken in a different manner in many. And they used a lot more uh, metaphors uh, mm. and you know picture language. So um, I. Uh, decided to read more translations so I when I come home to Norway I found two different Norwegian translations one that I had in the bookshelf of my one of my parents and um, uh, one that uh, I bought and I started to compare them and then I realized that oh wow they are actually <laughs> quite different from each other not, not none of them are probably wrong but they are different. They they represent different ways of uh, understanding it and and thus translating it as well. And um, I decided that if I'm gonna ever understand what they really try to say, I have to start reading it uh, reading these poems in the old Norse language. <clears throat> and that was a bit of a process of learning. <laughs> so, yeah. And also, um, I think I figured out quite early that the meanings of names and place names could be significant, at least in many of the stories. They do um, powerfully indicate what the, what the one who made the poem was trying to convey. Um, uh, so, so I started out also translating the names. So I spent years, years and years doing that. So... Many years before I started to write the manuscript or started to make the videos, I, I kept working with these poems. And I even made cartoons about them. That was a way of also learning them more. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> wow. So it's, no, it's, it's lovely. Academic work that I, yeah. that I was pulled into it with by a sense of, I don't know, by, by a sense of faith and a sense of, magic in a way and like mm-hmm. spirituality if you want to call it that yeah yeah and and you know and I think in a in another time and another era if you know universities were a little bit more like sort of what's that one in Harry Potter <laughs> is it Hogwarts <laughs> uh, yeah yeah perhaps you would have perhaps you would have stayed on in in university and been able to do the work in the way that yeah. that you wanted too, but um, my my husband he's a researcher at Roskilde University, yeah. And, yeah. and 
you know, I, I, I studied nursing many, many years ago, but I didn't really know about how universities worked until I met Thomas, <laughs> yeah. who, who works in one. And it's like the, the boxes are so rigid and so fixed in, in the way that you have to work. And it sort of it was, you know, I really understood why you didn't stay and you couldn't do the work that you do in, in that environment. No, I would probably have had to be a lot more careful with what I, I claimed and I wasn't ready to be that careful. I, I, I've always had very much respect for scientific methods and um, academic works and I mostly only read academics works uh, when it comes to this because um, not because I don't think that any author of uh, neo-pagan literature is not good uh, but I realized quite early on that if I did read uh, books written by non-academics who who had well who who whose reason for writing it was religious in some way um, they would they would often claim things that were more of a personal insight thing, but it was very hard to decide whether this was their personal insight or something that could actually be proved or argued uh, convincingly about. So I didn't, um, I just stopped reading these neo-pagan works for this reason, so that I wouldn't get confused between what the actual sources said and what uh, what could actually be argued in a in an academic way uh, at the same time I I learned the hard way that uh, the academic world is a bit too narrow for especially for young students who have a lot of ideas um, yeah <laughs> I, I had this um, re- revelation when I did my master degree the, the maiden with the mead uh, I, I wrote a thesis about the the initiation themes in the poetic edda and i i got this i had a lot of support from from my supervisors and i got to hear during my examination that yeah i had actually proved that this um basic theme of initiation and uh, and the way i had analyzed it was um, convincingly presented that they couldn't really argue against it but the willingness to allow me in was, well, it was. I felt a bit cold in a way. I didn't, I didn't feel that I got in there. And I thought, all right, um, maybe I just don't have this. Uh, even with an academic background, I don't have this. Um, I don't have what it takes as a person, perhaps, to to be, uh, to fit in, basically. To, yeah. Yeah, well, I, well, I, I have to go solo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Per- pers- personally speaking, I feel like their loss was was our gain, because university researchers tend to write papers that other university researchers read, rather yes. than the general public. So yes, you know, yes. I, I I feel like you know we those people who you know are the general public that are interested in this sort of thing have really benefited from from all the things that you've shared and if you'd have stepped was it Oslo University you were, University yeah yes. if it was Oslo I'm not sure I would have ever known that you existed and that would have been very sad for me 
Yeah, that's true, and I, that was also one reason I I did I I went down the path I did was that I discovered so many amazing studies written by students, by professors, by all sorts of people, both in Norwegian and uh, in other Scandinavian languages and English. Uh, I found so many great academic works and acclaimed works, but they didn't get out. They were there. In, you could only find them in the library. Some of them you could only find if you had a master student card for the library that you had to go down to the cellar, to the basement of the university library that was not actually available to, to most people. And also the language, the way it is presented, you actually have to be trained to, uh, to manage to read those things without it being too heavy. Uh, and uh, I think I have a very powerful urge to... Um, what do you call it for me um, to transmit uh, yeah to make this these stories and a lot also this research uh, also the, also not only my research but the research of other people also to make it more easily accessible to people who were just interested because what I discovered when I was uh, for example when I was in England and also in other countries was that so I was quite amazed by how many people asked me questions about Norse mythology and the Viking Age. Uh, people I met, people who you would never believe would ask me. But yeah, this was something that lots of people were interested in. So yeah, yeah, and 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 it's it's incredible how much you know material there is, you know. Yeah. On Norse mythology from archaeology and from the Eddas and there's nothing else like it it's just it's just there's so much richness there but without people like you to sort of <laughs> translate it a bit and and make it yeah. accessible it would be yeah <laughs> that, yeah. Oh, yeah I wouldn't be I wouldn't be able to understand you know 90 percent of it I think and you know and I, I I'm not a stupid person but but you have no. to know a lot of you know, like you talking about those metaphors and those kennings, and you have to really know a lot of stuff before you can even start to approach, you know, exactly what it means. Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't have the time. I don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my job to break it down, uh, come up with my own stuff. But I also, I think, I have presented some research uh, that that has been. I remember a few years ago, someone asked me, um, someone from Sweden, I think, asked me if I knew how to get hold of a copy of a book written by another professor, uh, a woman called Else Mundal, that I referred to in, in, in my work. Um, I referred to her a lot because she wrote a, a very good study of the filgja, the motive of the filgjur. And they had never heard about her, even though they were also academics in Sweden. So she was a Norwegian academic. Well, she still lives. Um, um, but she wrote a very important piece that has inspired me a lot. And uh, I was very happy to be able to uh, actually connect with her and ask her if she still had some books to sell. She was really surprised. She said she had she had some books. Uh, so suddenly three, four different people from Sweden and Denmark got her work. And I'm really happy to have that uh, been able to to sort of revive some knowledge that has just it's just dusting yeah. away in university library cellars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's it. And, and 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 I think it will continue to revive the interest in yeah. 
kind of old Norse and Scandinavia, because I mean, I, I, I'm not maybe that your average person that, that likes this sort of thing, you know, at heart, I would probably, you know, I probably am really described as a new ager, but I love all this stuff. And when I talk to other people about it, who are also new ages, they also love it. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, I don't know. It's almost like something that's been missing because there's a lot of groundedness. There's a lot of groundedness to this spirituality and to the energy of it. It's very nitty gritty. It's not trying to be all love and light, you know? No, it isn't actually. It's, uh, uh, I, uh, I agree. It's, it's, it's nice that it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely more, well, it's not all love and light, but it's still very deep and um, there is some light in it too. There is, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's, it. You've, but that's yeah. it, you've got both ends of the scale. Yeah. It can hold, you know, which like, because um, Thomas, my husband, he's also like really into Carl Jung and he spent six years studying to be a, a psychoanalyst. I said, to, I said, honestly, Thomas, can't you find something shorter <laughs> to do in six year <laughs> training? But but I do understand why he loves yeah. it. And it, it's this whole thing about being able to hold the opposite of t- tensions. Yeah. And, and that is in the, the Nordic um, cosmology for me. You've got the really high energies and you've got the, the very deep energies and both of them can be there. It's not one or the other. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's all of it. I think... Um... I think what I noticed about it a lot was that they didn't, it doesn't seem like they had the same duality that we are accustomed mm. to. Today. Mm. It looks like the, the good versus evil. It's not that they, they, they do, um, they did think something was bad and something was good, but um, they don't have this uh, whole worldview based on, either evil or good and, and you know it's not it's not so dogmatic as that uh, like the character Loki for example is is very very complex you can't say he's a negative figure and you can't say it's a positive figure either it's um he's just a very very complex character and I think that he's an amazing image of the human spirit actually with all its ups and downs <laughs> all its contradictions in a way um, I, I read something about him the other day or I heard something about him the other day and I don't know if it was you I was listening to or something else that I was reading and but it's it slipped away from me and I'm really cross because I can remember thinking oh wow because I've never felt like I've really understood what he is about and also he was a giant and then he became you know one of the gods and what does that mean you know yeah exactly yeah uh, well, I, I can't tell you what it means. Actually, I think we have to all feel our way there. But um, all I know is that uh, the stories tell that he was a Jötun, uh, which we translate to giant. Actually, the word Jötun didn't actually mean giant. It meant um, someone who eats a lot, a devourer. <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, and it's also... I hear people asking, maybe they were Neanderthals, maybe they were Sami, and, and um, well, we can't say they were that, but they are, they are characters from literature that we know, but um, some of them do seem to be based on, for example, Sami culture. So it is possible that 
there was a mix sometimes in saga stories where Sami people suddenly become uh, but uh, <clears throat> but they didn't actually represent Sami people either. They just represent something in in the universe, in the world at large, some power powers of different kinds, and they mostly have to do with um, natural forces. It mm. seems. Um, but um, where were where were we? What was that <laughs> question I was, again? <laughs> I was I was just you know wondering yeah. about Loki and you know saying I've never really got a handle on him and I oh, I wonder yeah. what that's all about. Yeah, the Yurton aspect. Well, he he's sort of enabled. He is the one in all the stories where he appears. He is the one who travels into the other worlds, for example, into the giant worlds. And he and if other people, except Odin, if other characters travel, they often travel like Thor. Often travel with Loki into the other world. So he's sort of. Um, it's almost like he enables them to access uh, other worlds than their own. And he, even the the horse that he gives birth to when he turned into a mare. Um, that horse is the one that Odin has to ride when he travels into other worlds. That was a gift from Loki. It's actually Loki's child. So he has a role that is very similar to that of shamans, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he is doing services for the gods, finding things, going, uh, finding lost things that have gotten lost in the the other worlds. Um and uh, he, in one old skaldic poem that is dated back to the year 900, Hauslang, uh, Loki is referred to as Sagnarærir, and that means the one who stirs the stories. And I think that in the stories, in the myth, that's exactly his role. He is the one who creates conflicts, and then he's the one who deals with the conflict, and then he's the one who solves the conflict. Always, he makes the conflict, but he also solves it. So um, he sort of represents that power in the world. I think uh, the power that actually creates the drama. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. 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 So I'm reading. I'm reading um, Neil Price's book at the moment, The Children of Ash and Elm, and I was reading about this. Um, idea that there was a huge sort of volcanic event that created a a, a ash cloud over Scandinavia and it it seems to have sort of be something that has you know gained some approval from different types of scholars and I I was just thinking because he he said about 50 percent they reckon about 50 percent of the population in Scandinavia died from this volcanic event in the sixth century yeah. and and you know how this could have been you know like connected to like Ragnarok and and those kind of stories and because because it's Loki isn't it he gets quite a rough deal really he gets sort of tied up until until the end of the what is that right is it Loki? He gets Loki. He gets, he gets he gets tied up and has this poison dripping on him for like until the end of the world <laughs> Yeah, well, that's because he, um, well, the gods did, gods discovered that he was the one who was behind the the murder of Baldur. That's right. That's why he was tied up. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> but, <laughs> but a really long time though until yeah. the world ends it's like oh dear yeah. but um that uh, I haven't read uh, the Children of Ash and Elm. I haven't. It's really uh, but interesting. He, but but yeah. it is true that yeah. uh, there was a volcanic event yeah. somewhere. I think perhaps on Iceland. Uh, this was before Iceland was settled, yeah. uh, or elsewhere. But it 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 went through all of Europe, especially yeah. Northern Europe. And Scandinavia was very hard hit. And it's true yeah. that it's estimated that uh, maybe one half of the population died. Uh, during this time not from the volcano volcanoes because the volcano didn't happen in Scandinavia mm. didn't happen in Europe it probably mm. happened outside of Europe or in Iceland uh, but it left um, clouds for three years uh, there would have been ash clouds all over uh, causing of course famine because it mm. would block the light of the sun and um, and it caused um, not only famine, uh, and it caused long, long winters, the Fimbulveter, which means the, the great winter. Uh, and it caused the, the sky to go dark, the sun wasn't seen. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this I think this happened around 536. And we have lots and lots of sources from all over Europe de- de- describing this time as a very hard time. And not only they also ha- they also got a pandemic. There was a, a plague going there, and probably similar to the Black uh, Death, the, the bubonic plague. We don't know, but there was a. Uh, also, it came with plague mm-hmm. and it came, of course, with wars, with lawlessness, with the complete um, destruction uh, of the crumbling of civilization. Uh, every, it really destroyed uh, European culture, the European culture mm-hmm. that existed back then. Uh, so when we read uh, in the Verluspo poem, the Edda poem Verluspo about Ragnarök, uh, this description... Uh, of what's going to happen, what's going to destroy the world is very similar to what actually did happen back in 530, 530s. I think it was 536, actually. So this is absolutely true. Um, yeah. But I haven't read what Neil Price wrote about it. I mean, I just, I'd never heard of this before. I, it's, I've just never heard of it. And, 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 and it's just fascinating because it makes so much sense because I've never really like all the all the things about Rana Rock. I've never really. I'm like, where's this coming from? I don't understand. <laughs> it's just like it seems so bleak and all the rest of it. But when he's describing like what you were, all those things you were just saying, then it has. I'm like, okay, <laughs> now yeah. I'm seeing it because yeah. because that is going to be you know deep in like the collective unconscious of a culture even centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of yeah it literally destroyed i mean imagine just imagine yeah. uh, your village or uh, your town everyone you know suddenly only a third is left perhaps yeah. after a few years of the suddenly the the sun that they it is thought i, I heard a lecture by a archaeologist and Norwegian archaeologist Lena Fare a few years ago where she talked about this and how society changed a lot uh, for example the religion changed and yeah. um, during the bronze ages like a thousand years before this people had been building these great burial mounds but then during the iron ages they they stopped doing that but after this event in 536, almost a thousand years after they stopped making these huge mounds, they started to really build mounds again. 
it's like they returned to this uh, uh, custom of making huge burial mounds. Uh, we don't know why, but this happened just after this uh, great cataclysmic event. Uh, so something changed in society. Also, you find uh, images of the sun goddess, uh, that we have lots of images of the sun from the Bronze Ages. She also disappeared, sort of. Yeah. But uh, after this uh, cataclysmic event, you find the images of the sun goddess on so, so many um, standing stones, rune stones, uh, from this the centuries after this uh, event happened. So, yeah, I think this was something that really carved itself very deep in the minds of people who lived uh, back then and, uh, and their and the stories that they transmitted on. So they could really literally imagine how the world would, you know, fall apart mm. uh, because some of them had experienced it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, and of course, it's more um, vivid to me reading this because, you know, of COVID, because we've had our own event that has come in. And yeah, technology has dealt with things to such a great degree that it hasn't been the crisis that it would have been, you know, prior to us being such a technological society. But yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because like I think you can see the same things people in society and people have lots of different ideas about what's caused it, you know, just just like they did then. It's like what's gone on or is this what what's happened to the sun goddess, you know, I can imagine they must have thought that, you know, she'd like yeah, was really cross with them, or they've been bad, or she was know. eaten by a wolf. Then she rebirth. She she rebirthed herself, and this is so beautifully put in the Verlus poet, it, and in also in some other poems where they describe that um, the son actually gives birth to a daughter who follows in her mother's path. So there is a new son after this catastrophe. Also, it's interesting that after this catastrophe, many of the countries in continental Europe uh, actually converted to Christianity. Yeah. It was during the same era. So maybe people lost faith in the old gods. Maybe they got a uh, new faith in the new religion that sort of could explain why God did this to you. Yeah. But up in the in in the northernmost parts, then people uh, just the the pagan religion also changed as we have seen as the archaeology archaeology has shown something changed also in their religious life but um they they stayed pagan oh yes but that's it um, i read a i read a I, th- I think it was something he wrote i read something that carl jung wrote about um how you know these old gods were still very much in the collective unconscious of the countries where they had been and 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 I was really fascinated to read that because he was kind of like ignore them at your peril (laughs) 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 I'm not an expert on Jung actually I I did I'm sure I did read something about from him uh, um, a long time ago but um, I I I don't think it's wrong uh, actually uh, in my experience, these gods also, 
I've said, I think I said it publicly that I'm not religious. Uh, I don't adhere to a particular religion. I don't. Um, um, but that doesn't mean I don't believe that these gods exist in some way. Mm-hmm. Like my father told me that they exist because you believe in them. In a way, they also have their own existence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I have in my mind, I have these images of them. And uh, I've also had this sense of communicating with them, <laughs> getting advice from them. Um, so they have a reality, uh, whether it be in our mind, in our collective consciousness or in the, in the cosmos as, you know, more objectively, I, um, they have this, uh, presence yes. that I feel anyway <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 I've been listening to um the uh lectures you made up about Eden yeah. on your Patreon site I think oh, I think yeah. there was a lot <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think I've I think I've I'm, I might have got a little bit That's of hardcore the, lecture <laughs> it was oh, well I've always been really interested in 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 her for some reason and I haven't been able to find that much about her and her like field of wells and when you said that um there's a thing about like her 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 field of wells will be there when Ragnarok is finished and sort yeah. of like the new earth that's probably not the way you said it but like the new earth is like you know being recreated and because I'm and also because I'm surrounded by water here in Roskilo I am like literally surrounded by all these it's a very sacred landscape there I've been there once and it was I just walked around a lot and was amazed yeah oh thank you oh I love there is a I totally agree with you that there is a yeah I think this may have been an area where there was a lot of religious activity going on and it still can still be felt in a way. I, I, I think so. I've not come and I've asked people, I've not come across anything sort of pre-Christian, but I'm sure these springs were around sort of pre-Christianity. Yeah. We have, of course, Liar just down the road. But I if think there's a springs lot of worship named, here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And if some of those springs are named after Mary or um, any saint, then it's definitely used to be something about the pagan gods before, because they also always replaced uh, the names of pagan gods on places with saint names. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. But there is this uh, I, this notion that the world. If, even if everything ends, there is always something new. There is always a new beginning. That's something that goes like a red thread through all these myths, that the world renews itself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it has to um, it has to be destroyed before it renews itself. That's something that goes um, on and on and on in these myths. Yeah. Yeah. So how many how many years have you been studying all this Norse cosmology now, Maria? Do you think? It depends on when I should start counting because um, I am pretty sure I already began when I was a child in a way because I read a lot. So I I remember reading books about these things too. 
I also had this grandfather who was into it, into these myths and stories and sagas who introduced me to a lot, actually. He, he could recite some Edda poetry to me in Norwegian, though, but yeah. And uh, he could recite different saga stories to me and talked a lot about it. So I guess without knowing it, I was already studying it um, for a long, long time. Um, I remember also we had uh, Old Norse in uh, high school when I was like 16, 17. And uh, and that it interested me that I was amazed that this language was in so I could sort of read it already then because it was so similar to Norwegian, but still also very different, also the grammatically very different, and many words had changed meanings or they had just had different words or words that I could recognize, but that were old-fashioned to me. Um, so it was sort of easy to get into, but I, I don't think I actually really started to consciously study Norse mythology as such until I was 21 when I was uh, found this book that I told you about that was when I got absolutely hooked and obsessed about it and <laughs> it just didn't stop <laughs> it, it I think I'm interested in all sorts of history I, I love especially ancient history I love ancient history archaeology uh, I, I, at some point, I wanted to become an archaeologist, but it, it didn't work out that way. But <laughs> I, um, I could have studied other sorts of uh, mythologies too. I was interested in other other mythology from all over the world, mm-hmm. and I read a lot of ethnographies. So it wasn't this. Um, it wasn't that I was interested in. There was nothing nationalistic in my approach at all. Uh, it was just that I discovered that this was closer to my culture and what I grew up with. And it was easier for me to get into it, easier to learn this old language. Mm. And uh, and it just was felt very relevant in a way to, to, to me. Um, and uh, the moment I started to sort of dig in and started to discover that, oh, wow, there are meanings here. And and happily discovering that, yeah, actually, Norse poetry is actually based on metaphors. That uh, that that's that's how it works. That's how it's made. It's made by with metaphors. The entire prose Edda written by Snorri Sturluson was a way of explaining these metaphors used in Edda and Skaldic poetry, so that he made it actually possible for us to. To, he, he gave us a key yeah. to unlock the actual meanings of these poems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was just hooked and um, it just became the field where I feel I specialised and where I feel I have some expertise. Yeah. <laughs> and you're still, you're still hooked today? Yeah, I am. I have other interests too, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it is where I have... Uh, I think maybe this is the era where the, the, not the area. area where I yeah. area where I feel that I really do have something to come with, something to share. Uh, that's something that is original. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was um, talking to my Danish husband Thomas about in- interviewing you, and I was saying about um, because when I've heard you speak Norwegian, I. I can't understand Norwegian, but I understand Danish fairly okay. Yeah. And um, 
Because, because, yeah, Thomas, like, he can be on, like, a Zoom call with someone in a university in Norway and someone in a university in Swedish, and they all speak their own language. Yeah. And they understand yeah. each other. But, I yeah, mean, that's, you know, yeah. Obviously, I don't have that level of competence with the language, but but you know, I can I can read, I can see that Norwegian is very similar to Danish yeah. in in a lot of the words, I guess, because of that period where Denmark was ruling over um, yeah. Norway. But but then Thomas said, and I, oh, I'd never heard this before. He said he said there's there's a language called New Norsk. Yeah. Yeah, actually, yes. Uh, that was uh, Ninosk was uh, actually invented by a linguist in during the 1800s, Ivar uh-huh. um, Olsen. Uh, and he did that as a part of the liberation process uh, because Norway wanted to become free from Denmark, uh, obviously. And uh, he was among the people who pointed out that we are writing in Danish. When you read Norwegian, it's almost identical to Danish. But when we speak, we sound very different and we use different words. And especially if you go outside of Oslo, uh, especially on the West Coast, the dialects there uh, were much closer to the Old Norse than uh, the language that we speak in the towns. Um, So, yeah, he created a written language system that would be more suitable for people who live... uh, in the countryside uh, or outside uh, on the west coast of Norway, um, this this language is better for them because it's it's more close to how they actually speak. He wanted uh, the people who promoted Nynorsk. It means new Norwegian, but it's actually based on old older Norwegian. Um, it's not a spoken language; it's a written language, but it's based on dialects. Yeah. Uh, the reason why we can understand each other so easily is because uh, all our languages, Danish and Swedish and Norwegian, they have the same roots um, and they just evolved out of uh, different dialects, different accents. So we sound very different. But when you look at the way we, you know, if you read these languages, you'll see how much, how similar they actually are. So. Um, I think people who did not, um, well, when I grew up, we had, uh, we watched a lot of Danish movies um, and we watched a lot of Swedish movies. We even had Swedish TV um, and it wasn't dubbed or anything. It, it, we just got this, these neighboring languages in. Uh, so I can't speak Danish and I can't speak Swedish, but I can understand it. I can yeah. hear them and understand yeah. it. Yeah. I think Danish is sometimes the hardest for me to understand because of the, the pronunciations. Because they, they swallow all of their Yes, their they, they swallow yeah, the words. Yeah. I couldn't, so I couldn't I struggle sometimes. Yeah. I Sometimes I do speak English with Dan- Danish people, but, yeah. um, but, but I can understand them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, when I when I I had to go to language school and, and learn Danish to pass my like language exams to live here, and um, I couldn't believe. You know, I felt like yeah. I was learning two languages: the written language and then the way it's spoken, because I couldn't <laughs> actually see really how they related to each other. They're, they're so different from each other. But I mean, I'm you know pretty much used to it now. So, <laughs> so that's, I've been here seven. I've been here seven years now, and um. I, you know, I, I I go to school meetings for my son and they speak Danish and I speak English because 
when I do speak Danish, it's just so difficult for people to understand my accent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I heard they they did a study on Norwegian, Swedish and Danish children and discovered that Danish children actually use one year, one more year than Norwegian and Swedish children to actually learn to speak their own language properly because of these difficult pronunciations. Yeah, well, that makes me feel a bit better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But when I went to... um, When I went to Sweden once, uh, I was asked to hold a lecture in Sweden and I asked if I was going to hold it in English and they said, no, you can hold it in Norwegian. And I was like, all right. And I actually did uh, check my manuscript for this lecture. Uh, I I did a Google Translate just to make sure that some words that I, I, there was maybe three or four words that I changed just to make them sound more Swedish. And I understood everything. I had no problem understanding Norwegian. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's handy, isn't it? (laughs) But we do travel a lot between the countries, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you got? What have you got planned for the future then? Where do you see yourself going with all this? I have never been very good at planning my future, actually. (laughs) I haven't. (laughs) I'm a very here and now, actually. And I also have a tendency to just leave the past um, behind. Um, So it's very hard to think what I'm going to do in the future. I think that's that. I just know what I'm doing now, the projects I'm doing now. I yeah. have this project based on, <clears throat> well, after I opened the Patreon, I earned a bit more uh, yeah. on this work. And yeah. uh, it made it possible for me to, well, when I make these lectures, I make one at least one lecture every month, yeah. uh, sometimes more. And they are they, they, they will form the basis of a few books that I am uh, working on. So every so every lecture is part of a manuscript that will turn into a book eventually. So there will be a book about Eden um, mm. where I go through the sources, the the Skullskapar Mall source, the um, the Hauslung, the Skaldic poem source, and the Rafnagaldr Odin's the Odin's Raven Song, which also uh, I think is about Eden. Uh, and it's also the poem where I got the the, the title from the the seed of Yggdrasil. It actually comes from stanza six in Rafnagaldrudins, where Eden is said to be fro Yggdrasils, the seed of Yggdrasil sinking down the ash. That's Eden. And I'm writing uh, also working on this huge lecture series, which will become a book, which is probably going to be as big as the seed of Yggdrasil. Uh, and that's going to be about Saider and Fjölkingi. Fjölkingi means great knowledge and is usually translated as witchcraft in, or sorcery in, in modern translations of the sagas. And since I um, always read these passages in the Old Norse uh, and try to do my own translations, I've discovered that the word Fjölkingi is... Uh, the word most used for all kinds of magic. Uh, even skaldskap is a form of fjölkingi. Saider mm-hmm. is a form of fjölkingi. And it just means great knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I haven't got I haven't got onto those um, lectures no. yet. 
I've been too busy. Oh, you have a whole series. Yeah. 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 Uh, Uh, yeah. And I'm thinking of wrapping it up now. Uh, In a few lectures time, I will have enough for a whole manuscript, um, one part of the the work. Then I'm going to move on to to go through the initiation stories of the Edda that I've already worked with a lot, but I'm going to go much more in-depth into each story. Beginning with the initiation of Odin. <laughs> Fantastic! Oh, I can't wait! I can't wait! And I mean, I can because I've got I've got a lot to listen to already. <laughs> so by the time you've done it, I, I might have caught yeah. up and, and be and be ready to yeah. uh, listen to it. But I mean, I've been studying like um, a course on Seder with a woman called um, Imelda Alnquist, and she yeah. is from the Netherlands, lives in London, and has been teaching us in Sweden. Yes, I think I've had uh, some contact with her at some point. Yes, oh, she's fantastic. She's really fantastic. And she always recommends your work. And, you know, your work is on our reading list. (laughs) Oh, great. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, I do have one wish for the future. I do. And that is to somehow get the time, uh, the time and room to continue writing my novel series. Because oh, that has been put on hold for yeah. such a long time. Yeah. Is it three? There's three books. I have four. Oh, there's four. four. Books now. Okay. There's four books now. Yeah. And they are republished now by the, the Three Little Sisters. They do work as they are uh, in the, the four books, actually make a, a good story on, it, on their own. But okay. it's supposed to continue. And uh, I haven't been able to do that because of time, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand. I read them a few years ago and I remember the last one. When I read the last one, I was like, oh, I want to read That more. ends with a cliffhanger. There is a fourth. There is a, you, you, if, if you ended up with the, you read the Heldrun's claim, I think, the yeah, last one. Yeah. Yeah, there is a fourth book. Okay. okay. So there is a continuation. <laughs> <laughs> where you get to know what happened <laughs> yeah oh brilliant oh right I'll go and look for that did you enjoy writing them oh yeah I think they came out of a very dark place actually I was uh I was actually physically ill so I couldn't work uh fortunately for me I live in Norway so we, I got actually um support from the state to get through it and I couldn't really do anything I couldn't hardly go out uh, of the house so and I wasn't I wasn't in I had written the Sida Vigdrasil already and I wasn't in a shape to actually do more academic work at the time so I just I was just writing often from the bed actually just writing and writing and writing and um so I, I can't say I was actually enjoying myself <laughs> at this time uh, yeah. it was uh, it was hard but um but they I think this writing these books actually saved me uh, in many ways and it came from the heart and it felt so much like um like the story was just telling itself like the characters just came and you know demanded to uh, tell the story and I had this plan when I set out and that was to write the life um, write a story about the life of the Ulseberg priestess mm-hmm. uh, the youngest one and her relationship to the older one uh, but then as soon as I started writing I got into this 
storyline and this place where so many different characters seem to want to have their stories told. And I just, yeah, it was really a a magical experience in a way. It was, it just came. Mm. It's just, I could sit down, uh, put my hands, uh, my fingers to the tastature and, and it just came. Yeah. 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 And then they are very alive, those books, you know, it it does really feel like, you know, when I'm reading it, I'm not thinking, oh, this is a story. It's like, it's really happening. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I felt felt too. I still feel it. I sometimes read them myself again. And I'm like, wow, this is, sometimes it's, sometimes they, uh, some of the characters have opinions that I don't agree with. There's many other things happen that I, that actually upset me, but it's like, I had to tell it that way because that was how it was in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, these, these people, they, they became very much alive. I think many, many fiction writers get this. I think that you feel Mm. that uh, characters are real. And yeah. have their own lives and their own opinions and their their own experiences and I just I'm just channeling them in a way. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it feels like. Yeah, uh, I yeah, think that's yeah. very common for fiction writers, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I heard you talking about your um, grandfather um, mm. on one of the the videos on on Patreon, and and you know, and I've seen the videos that you do, it it really see it really feels like you come from a line of storytellers. <laughs> I do. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I, uh, my parents, both my parents told lots and lots of stories from their childhoods, from their youth, from when we were small, from their parents, from people they had known. Um, and uh, also about other things. Like my father was very much into history and he could also tell me uh, and, and philosophy. He could tell me stories, um, also about places and times and, what people had thought a few thousand years ago and why that changed. Uh, so they, they were great storytellers, both of them. And my grandparents, um, I think apart from my Murfar, my mother's father, he, he got Alzheimer's when I was relatively young. So I didn't really hear his stories, uh, but I heard stories about him. But my grandmother uh, and uh, my Murmur, my mother's mother, uh, had a lot of stories from her life and the people she knew when she grew up and uh, from during the war. And I had, um, of course, my father and my father's parents, uh, who are also amazing storytellers, especially, especially I think uh, the greatest storyteller of them all was my my father, my Einar. He was, and he had lived such a life. He had been a sailor, so he had been all over the world. And he had such an eye for detail, for di- good dialogues, what people had said that impressed him. And also from during from the war, all of them had stories about the, the Second World War, the, when, when Norway was occupied by Germany, and they were all involved in the secret resistance in mm. some way or other. And my, mm. my grandfather, Einar, he was very active, actually, uh, did sabotage, <laughs> his father-in-law my great-grandfather also uh, did sabotage he, he managed to uh, put explosives on the train um, 10 spy trains railway station <laughs> to to um, well he wanted to destroy some german 
train uh, delivery. And he did this on his 50th birthday in 1942. And he actually invited a whole party of people, including the police, the chief of the police, who was known to be sympathizing with the Nazis. And he even invited him. And they went up to this place called Schlotzfjelle in uh, in Tönsberg. That's a a little hill from where you could have a very good view of the train station at midnight. And they were celebrating his 50th birthday. So obviously they they put up the the booze and, and, and shared. And then bang, there was this massive explosion. Uh, down at the train station and my great-grandfather and who had the birthday he he was cheering very loudly and the police (laughs) officer turned to him and like okay Ole Anton you're living dangerously (laughs) but he didn't actually he didn't rat on him (laughs) so yeah they had so many stories to tell actually about um these times I, I feel like I have as I'm I have stories going back uh, to the 1800s from my family so so I understand a bit about how oral transmission works in a way yeah and I think that in a time when you didn't have tv you didn't have internet you didn't have phones you didn't they didn't even have newspapers or books they were all relying on oral transmission on storytelling Mm -hmm. that's how they learned things about the past everything and they also had these traditions of learning things by heart, like poetry by heart. So uh, I think I understand how it's possible that people could sit down and write sagas and poetry down 200 years, 300 years, 400 years after they actually happened because the storytelling traditions were really powerful. And if I, in my time, could actually learn so much by just listening to old people because uh, I I was a little bit of a weird child who liked to listen to old people more than I liked to play with other children so I um, I got these stories a lot and I, I can imagine that uh, many of the stories told in the sagas actually do have a good deal of basis in real events and real people mm. yes yeah well, it's been really, really lovely talking to you. I'm so grateful to you for your time and your energy because I know, you know, you're very busy, very busy. And, that you know, the amount of work you put into your Patreon and the lectures, it's just phenomenal, it's just phenomenal. I can see just the hours and hours and hours of dedicated study <laughs> that go into it. It does take some passion, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. yeah oh you're welcome and yeah big big thank you from me and you know all of your fans of whom I know many <laughs> and we oh, all think we all think you're say hello to them yes. <laughs> yeah. so thank you thank you thank so you. much and perhaps we can talk again another day oh yes yes definitely nice talk <laughs> it's I'll been really lovely I'll tell you if I go to day again oh yes do no. I yeah. could show you some lovely places Yes, Maybe, oh, you yes. know, I would love a bit that. Hidden. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> great. Thank you. All right. Yeah. So have a have a lovely. No way. I'll take you to some burial mounds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Oh, yes. I, li- I like a good burial mound. Yeah, me too. <laughs>
Hulk. Bye, bye. Bye, Maria. Bye. Bye. Bye.